The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Before we get started, please allow me a moment to share some important information. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder in My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate and help keep the show growing and improving. You've heard me talk about it in recent episodes, that I'll be at the CrimeCon convention this June, and I hope to see you there as well. I'll be on Podcast Row, so if you're going, stop by and say hi. If you need to register still, visit crimecon.com to complete your registration and purchase badges. And at checkout, use my promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to save 10% on your standard badge purchase. Again, that promo code is CRIMINOLOGY19. As a special thank you, the next three users that use that promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to purchase their CrimeCon badges, which includes copies of my books about the Zodiac and Golden State Killers, stickers, coffee mugs, and more. And I'll give it to you in person at CrimeCon. So save some money and get some free merch in the process. And just another reminder that before CrimeCon, I'll be in Albany, New York on April 15th and 16th, attending the ISOC convention. That's the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. I'll be part of a panel alongside Tim and Lance from the Crawl Space and Missing Maura Murray podcast, as well as John Lorden, who hosts Brain Scratch on YouTube, and is also my co-host on Three Men in a Mystery. If you're in that area, come out and see us. Now that we've got all that stuff out of the way... Let's get on with today's case. In mid-December 1985, many of the 230,000 residents in Corpus Christi, Texas, located on the east-central side of the state, were getting ready for the approaching Christmas holiday. Two of those people were 34-year-old Gary Gillette and his 22-year-old wife Stephanie. But they wouldn't live to see Christmas Day. They were murdered in a brutal and shocking attack that horrified the Corpus Christi community. For Gary Gillette, he was on his second marriage. He had three daughters from his first marriage, and although things were shaky at first at the end of his divorce, the situation improved between Gary and his ex-wife, and Gary's daughters had come to approve of and really like Stephanie. Gary and Stephanie were married three years earlier, when Stephanie was just 19. Gary was a successful businessman, and Stephanie, a devoted wife that accompanied Gary to many of his business meetings. Around the same time the couple got married, Gary had opened up a mudlogging consulting business, and by 1985, it seemed to be flourishing. When the happy couple weren't busy building the business, they often went pub hopping together. Gary, nicknamed Double G, enjoyed shooting pool and playing jokes on people. By all accounts, the couple was outgoing and well-liked, and neither had an enemy in the world, or so it seemed. On December 14th, Gary's daughters tried to call his home, but they got a busy signal. They tried again later on, and once again, got the same busy signal. They started to think that maybe the phone had been knocked off the receiver. 
When they got a busy signal again hours later, they started to feel uneasy. But there was no reason to think anything was wrong at Gary's and Stephanie's rented home at 4826 Sweetbriar Circle. Later, Gary Gillette's daughter Shay went to her father's home with some friends. The home was locked up. Shay looked in through the windows but didn't see anything unusual. But she still felt uneasy and even thought about breaking into the house through the garage. But then she started thinking if her dad caught her damaging his door to break into the house, he'd be really mad. So at that point, Shay and her friends left. On December 15th, at around 1 p.m., a friend of Gary's and Stephanie's named James Garland Harris, who went by Gary, went to the couple's home looking for them. He claimed to have called them repeatedly, but had gotten the same busy signal that Gary Gillette's daughters had received when they called. When he arrived at the home, he found it secured and locked. There was one car parked out front instead of the normal two. According to Harris, something seemed off to him, and he managed to get into the home. In the couple's master bedroom, he discovered Gary and Stephanie Gillette. Both were obviously dead, and there was blood everywhere. He tried to call police, but the phone wasn't working, so he left the house and went to a nearby phone to call police. Police arrived on the scene a short time later. They went in and checked on the Gillettes and confirmed that they were indeed dead and apparently had been dead for quite a while. A medical examination of the bodies revealed that the Gillettes had likely been killed in the early morning hours of December 14th, more than 24 hours before Gary Harris called police. Gary Gillette had suffered a massive blow from a hatchet to the back of his head. Stephanie seemed to be the focus of the killer's rage. She had been struck several times in the head and face with a hatchet. She also had been stabbed multiple times. Interestingly, the medical examiner discovered that the stab wounds were post-mortem, meaning that someone had stabbed Stephanie multiple times well after she was dead. The damage to the 22-year-old's face was so bad that she was unrecognizable. As police combed through the home, there were no clues at first. Everything seemed secure and locked down, and in its place. Police theorized that the couple had let their killer or killers into their home. During the investigation, they found that the phone lines had been cut, and in a guest bedroom, stashed under a mattress, they found a bloody hatchet and knife, which turned out to be the murder weapons. One thing that was missing from the home was Gary Gillette's mint condition 1979 Buick Electra. The car was very distinct with maroon paint and a white top. It was one of Gary Gillette's most prized possessions. As police continued to work the crime scene, Shay Gillette and her mom, Gary's ex-wife, arrived after finally deciding that they needed to see why they hadn't heard from the Gillettes. As they pulled up to the house, Shay jumped from the car and raced towards the yard, which now had police crawling around it and yellow crime scene tape marking it. Police told her that she couldn't go in, and she knew immediately that something was very wrong. As they waited outside for any updates from police, Shay saw a man that she didn't know talking to her mom. As time passed, police brought out body bags and the realization set in for Shay that her father was dead. As she composed herself, she asked her mom who the man was that she had been talking to. Her mom answered that it was Gary Harris, one of her father's best friends, and the same man who had found the bodies. They didn't know it then, but he would also become the main suspect in the case. On December 17th, two days after the Gillette's bodies were found, Gary Gillette's prized Buick Electra, was located at 8.10 p.m. in another area of Corpus Christi. When police processed the vehicle, they found a print that grabbed their attention. It belonged to Gary Harris, the same friend of the Gillettes who found their bodies. Harris was a surprising suspect to them. He had been a reserve constable in New Aces County. He had a spotless record, and he was considered friendly, courteous, and reliable. Gary Harris had been close friends with Gary Gillette for years before the murders. And at Gary Gillette's funeral, Gary Harris was one of his pallbearers. When investigators questioned Harris, in addition to admitting to finding the bodies of his friends, he also verified he was the last one to see them in their home before they were killed. Harris maintained his innocence since day one, but police couldn't shake some of the things that seemed to connect him to the murders. They even discovered that Gary Gillette's car was found parked very close to a home where a woman lived that Harris reportedly had a romantic interest in. Before long, Gary Harris found himself arrested for the murders of his friends. He was placed on unpaid leave from the county 
and the department had to hire a constable to replace him. Harris was lodged on $200,000 bail, $100,000 for each murder. Gary Harris's attorney tried to have bond reduced for his client, and he had 35 different character reference letters submitted on Harris's behalf from police officers, businessmen, and other respected people from the Corpus Christi area. Harris also was reportedly given and passed a lie detector test during this time. Eventually, his bail was reduced, and he was freed from jail pending court proceedings. In November 1987, a year and a half after he was initially arrested, Harris was granted a dismissal of his case by the district attorney, who felt that the case against Harris could not be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Following the dismissal of the case against Harris, he continued to maintain his innocence. He also stated that he would testify in the future if the real killer was ever brought to trial. No other arrests in this case have ever been made, and the question as to why someone would kill Gary and Stephanie Gillette remains unanswered. The dismissal of charges against Gary Harris has left Gary Gillette's children bitter and hurt. They truly believe that Gary Harris got away with a heinous and brutal double murder. Although I personally can't endorse or refute Gary Gillette's family's beliefs, and I certainly make no accusations against Gary Harris through this podcast, it's clear from my conversation with Gary Gillette's daughter, Shay, Harris was the best suspect. She shared her thoughts about this case and her father with me. That conversation is next after a word from our sponsor. Hi, Shay, and thanks for joining me to discuss your father's case with us today. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to recap and start off with asking you, how old were you when your dad was killed? I was 14 and a half. And did you have any brothers and sisters? I have two sisters younger than me. At that age, you know, any age, but especially I think at that age, that would be something tough to really go through. How how tough was that for you personally to have something happen like that in your life at that, that time? Well, with my mom being um, a working mom and, you know, depending on my dad for help when she's was, you know, working as far as doing his part, taking care of us and so forth on his days. Um, it, I basically had to step up and take that role for my mom so she could support us, you know? So it changed my life dramatically. Um, I had to grow up really fast, really quick. And, and to, you know, go through a tragedy like that at an age that at an impressionable age like that, um, it's, it's difficult. You're always looking over your shoulder. You don't trust anybody. You, you lose any kind of faith that you ever had in, you know, people you thought you knew. And, and it's, it caused me to not want to go to school, not to want to be around anybody. I'm pretty much reclused. For lack of a better word. And I think that's what's common in some of these cases is that it's not only the person who's killed that their life is altered, but it's it's everyone that's connected to them closely. Correct. Something changes for for the worse, and that happened to you, it sounds like. That's correct. I I mean, it... It it didn't just alter my life. It It altered generations. I mean, after... My kids, my kids' kids, um, you know, my dad always wanted a son. Uh, he was never going to have any more kids after, because he, he only wanted one woman to have his kids. And so he was never going to have any other kids. But, you know, he would have grandkids and grandsons. And, you know, that would have made his life incredible, as well as theirs, knowing him, you know, just getting them, just being able to know him. And, and have their grandfather um, in, their, in their lives. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, he was a wonderful, I I mean, a role, a role model. He would have been a great role model for my sons. I think that all of our lives would have been a lot different if this had not have happened. Tell us a little bit about your dad. What kind of person was he? What was he like? He was a hardworking man. He was a self-made man. I mean... My grandfather used to call my mom's dad used to call him a man's man because that's just the way he was. He he started working at the age of fifteen when his parents divorced 
to take care of his mom and his brothers and sister. And um, he never stopped from that day forward. Um, his father, you know, he after his mom got situated and settled in, into her own life and was able to, you know, get her kids out and get them settled in their life, he moved to the Corpus area uh, with his dad. I think his dad was in the military, if I'm not mistaken. He passed away when I was young, so... And, you know, being that my dad passed away when I was young, I didn't get a lot of information about him other than I had met him quite a few times, but, you know, it was short visits and whatnot. But my dad moved to Corpus and um, started working at a shoe store in uh, Corpus, and he met one of my mom's brothers and became friends with him, and... My grandfather adored him, thought he was very bright. My grandfather and my dad had the same interests. My grandfather was a petroleum engineer and a, a geologist. Um, and so he, my dad started learning a lot about the oil field from my grandfather. And I think he went to, to school and then got a job and then uh, a real good job with a, a mud drilling company. And then he branched out on his own. and. He just climbed from there. So he was a hard worker, but he was a very stern person. Um, when it came to his kids, you know, he was very protective, very, very stern, but, you know, taught us respect. You know, he was hilarious. He, he was a prankster. You know, he loved to joke. He loved to make people laugh. He was a great guy. I mean, he really was. How long were he and your mom married? I, I want to say 13 years. They divorced when I was in uh, fifth grade, so I was 10. Now, I, I'm, I might be mistaken. I'm not sure when their divorce is final, but I want to say between 11 and 13 years is how long they were married. My mom had me at 16, so um, soon after my dad met my uncle and became friends, he ended up moving in with my grandparents, and they... For all intents and purposes, they um, pretty much took guardianship of him, and that's how he met my mom, and they fell in love, and she had me. Oh. And that's, you know, that's how they met, and um, they got married while she was pregnant uh, with me. And so, um, but they, I think their divorce was final in like 82, and I was born in 71. So I'm not real sure. I think it maybe 11 years. Was it a tough transition after that divorce? I know, you know, with a lot of uh, people who have gone through divorce, there's a tough transition there. And especially if you're coming into your teenage years, you sort of get that little uh, re rebellious stage coming. Did, yes. did you get to that kind of point where you were angry uh, about their divorce? Well, no, sir, not about their divorce because they, they, you know, my dad stayed gone a lot and my mom was by herself, you know, and she, and he, he was, like I said, he was the man of the house and his thoughts were that a man should take care of his family and the wife shouldn't work. So without her working and him being gone all the time, she was just lonely. So, and then when he did come home, you know, they would argue about the fact that she never got to see him and. He never really got to spend time with us because his job took him everywhere and he was on the road. So that it wasn't so much a detriment to me about them getting a divorce. It's after they got a divorce that I started becoming a little rebellious because, you know, when you hit the teenagers, um, you want to wear makeup, you want to do this, you want to go to the mall, hang out with your friends. And he was protective to the point where he didn't like that. I always joke and say, if he could have put me in a, in a convent, he probably would have, you know. So it sounds like he was a typical dad. <laughs> I think most most yes, of us fathers are, are the same way. Yes. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so eventually he gets remarried to Stephanie. She becomes mm -hmm. your stepmom, essentially. What was your relationship like with her? How was that transition? Excellent. Excellent. Um, the first time I ever met her, I, I well, the anticipation of knowing that he was coming to pick me up and or coming to pick us up and he was bringing her with him. I was angry about leaving 
the house with another woman in my dad's car. But from the moment we got in the car, it was an instant connection. She was a sweetheart. Um, You know, she, when my dad couldn't be around for things like Easter or birthday or Christmases because of work, she was right there, you know, uh, picking up the, the role of my dad. And, you know, making sure that he kept his weekends, even though he might not have been home, we were there for his weekends, you know. She had no problem doing that. This woman would, and I'm going to tell you, she was such a sweetheart. Um, you know, we'd go spend the whole summer over there, and, and about 15, 20 miles away, they had a public swimming pool in a little town called Flower Bluff. And she would take us over there every single day, drop us off, and pick us up again around five or six in the afternoon. And she did that every day. And I mean, you just don't find a lot of stepmoms that take on at, at her age that take on a role of three, you know, girls that are, you know, hitting their, their puberty years or teen years or whatever you want to call it. And just pick up like she'd been doing it her entire life, you know, and that's the kind of person she was. She was, understanding I, we could talk to her about anything and it would go you know if it was something personal and we didn't you know when our dad involved or whatever she would never ever divulge that information it's like having a having a, a confidant essentially exactly yeah. exactly i mean you have to understand she was only 10 years older than me you know mm-hmm. she was 24 my dad was 34 take us back to the day that you found out that your dad and Stephanie had been killed. Can you walk us through how that day unfolded? Sure. Um, I was at their house the night before uh, they were found because ultimately he was supposed to pick us up on Friday night and we were going to do a traditional trim Christmas tree, decorate it, yada, yada, that kind of thing we did every year. And um, he had, my stepmom had called me Friday at, afternoon probably around three in the afternoon and said look she said your dad had an unexpected christmas party pop up and there's a a ton of potential clients there that he needs to you know make an appearance so if it's not too late we'll pick y'all tonight but if not we'll get y'all in the morning and i was kind of okay with that because i really had some friends that were going you know to be doing some things on friday night and I want, I really kind of wanted to go to that rather than go to my dad's anyway. I mean, I was 14 at the time, you know, so going to your dad when you get to be a teenager is not like, it, you know, it just kind of slows down more than, than normal, especially when you're doing things that, you know, he would not approve of, you know, he would never let you do it if you were at his house. So um, I, you know, so I kind of took that with stride. Well, my sisters were really disappointed. But, um, you know, they understood because it just, it went with the, his business, the life that we were used to. So, um, so Saturday rolls around and, you know, we tried calling them because we hadn't heard nothing from them. Their phone was busy all day long. Talked to my dad's answering service. They hadn't spoke to him since 1230 Friday night. Um, and so we started getting a little concerned, but. You know, it wasn't it, it wasn't uncommon for my dad to get called out on a moment's notice and leave. You know, I mean, that's just the nature of the job. And But his phone being off the hook kind of took us by surprise. But we kind of chalked it up as, hey, one of the cats could have easily jumped on the bed and knocked it off the hook. You know, we we weren't thinking along the lines of that they weren't alive. Yeah, that your, well, your minds didn't jump right to something bad like that happening. Exactly, exactly. And And with my dad's job the way it was, like I said, it wasn't unusual. Okay. So, uh, my mom, you know, Saturday night, well, still hadn't heard from him. I had some friends that were going to go to the movies in Corpus and we lived about 15 miles away in a town called Portland. And, um, anyway, so I told my mom, I said, what do I do? I mean, we haven't heard from dad all day. Um, his phone's still busy. Answering service hasn't heard from him. And she said, well, why don't you just go to the movies with your friends? And then, you know, swing by there on your way home and see if anything looks weird. And so he lived in a cul-de-sac. And, and I'm talking dead into the cul-de-sac was where his house was And so anyway, so Saturday night, we got over there, I want to say about 9, 
because we went after we went to the movies. And when we pulled in onto his road, his car, his business car, was parked in right at the edge of where the sidewalk and the driveway meets. Like, his car wasn't even up. It's like somebody pulled up real fast and got out. So we get out of the car. His garage door is wide open, except for the door leading into the house. All the lights in the house were on. Um, there were four of us. There was two guys and me and, and, uh, and um, anyway, they were walking around the outside the house, you know, looking for open windows or open doors or a way to get in the house to see what was going on. Well, meanwhile, I went, I looked like in by the front door, there was a window into his office. I looked around there. I could see everything because, like I said, every light in the house was on. Um, his car, King Buick Electra, that was in mint condition. Uh, it was a convertible. And when, and so sometimes he would take that car out and, and drive around with it Christmas lights. And that wasn't unusual for him either. It was unusual that he, you know, that his phone was busy and his car was gone. And, you know, he wouldn't have called us to go do that with. But so I looked in the house in his office and then I went straight to their bedroom window. And I stood there in that bedroom window, or at that bedroom window outside looking in that bedroom. The bedroom light was on. The hallway light was on. Their bedroom door was open. Their closet door was open. The closet light was on. Their bathroom door was open. That light was on. I could see the entire room and even into the hallway. And they were laying right there, and I could not see them. And I stood there for like 10 minutes. My friends were just like, what are what are you looking at? I mean, you know, for some reason, I could not see those people. And my stepmom was laying in front of a full-length mirror. And her legs were on the bed. And I could see that entire bedroom. And my dad was sitting on the ground with his head leaning up against the bed. And I didn't see it at all. I didn't see nothing. And so one of my friends said, hey, you know, that garage door, we could take the hinges off and get in and go make sure, you know, that that's something doesn't, you know, to make just to go look to see if something's out of place or doesn't look right. And I thought about it for a minute. And I, my dad was the type of person, you know, don't break into his house. I don't care if you're his kid or not. And if he would have come home and we were doing something like that, it, I would have been in deep crap. So I told my friend, I said, no, I don't think we're going to break into my dad's house. Let's just... Let's just go home. I'll tell my mom what's going on, and we'll go from there. So we're heading home, and, and to get from Corpus to Portland, you have to go over with what they call the Harbor Bridge. And um, as soon as we got on top of that bridge, I, I'm not kidding you, I had this flash of this gory scene in my head. Just like It, it just came over me like it, like it was subliminally stuck there and just hit me at one time. And then I really started getting panicky because, you know, I just, I knew something wasn't right. You just know, you kind of have a feeling. So I got home and I told my mom, I said, look, we really need to go back over there. I think something's seriously wrong. And I told her everything I experienced uh, from the moment we got there to the moment I got on the Harbor Bridge. And she was like, Shay, <laughs> you do not want to go break into your dad's house and walk into something that you you know, you don't know what's going on right now. We don't know what's going on. So I will not take you over there and let you walk in on something that could be very bad. She said, what we'll do is we'll wait until in the morning. If the answering service still has not heard from him and his son is still busy, we will call the police and we will go over there. And I was like, all right, all right. Well, my young, my middle sister, Christy, she always had, she's always had you know, really good intuition. And she just cried all night because she just knew something wasn't right. And so the next morning, sure enough, you know, everything is still still the same. And my mom called one of our friends because she was called, actually one of the guys that was with, the, with me the night before, he volunteered to drive us over there because he knew that if something bad went on, that we would never be able to get back home in the state, in, in that state of mind. So, um, so we get, we get to Corpus, we get on Everhart, which is a road that leads you to the street that he lived on. And there's a major intersection in between 
uh, Everhart, where his house was, and um, there was a major intersection you had to cross. Well, we're sitting at the light, and we see, like, five or six cop cars coming from that direction. And my mom just looked at me, and I was like, I know, I know this does not look good. And we were still a good half a mile from the entrance to his neighborhood. So we turn in, so once we get across that road and we turn into the neighborhood, his street was probably three streets after you make that turn. It, it just curved around and there were like five or six different little roads off of that little side road that were all cul-de-sacs. And his was like the third one down. Well, as soon as we rounded that corner, that all we saw were news reporters, uh, tons of cars just blocking the road, tons of people standing outside. We had to park away, like probably five or ten car lengths away from his actual street and run to his house. And by the time we got up to the door, the corner was there. The, there were ambulances, all three channels local channels that uh, Corpus has, all three of them, the news stations were there. All the people that lived on that street were outside. People that were passing by stopped to watch. And we just walked, we just drove up on this big, huge scene, not knowing anything. And the da- my, my dad's doors were open. There were cops all over the place. And as soon as I made my way through that crowd, I just started running for the garage door. And about three or four police officers grabbed me and they were like, no, you, we're sorry, sweetie, but you cannot go in there. And I'm like, tell me what happened to my dad. And they were like, ma'am, you, they didn't call me ma'am, but they were like, honey, you just, you, you need to stay right here. Stay with your mom. And I, you know, my, my mom was just frozen. She didn't know what to do. Well, meanwhile, I happened to glance around because I, I'm in shock, you know, I'm in total disbelief because at this point they're bringing out body bags and um i'm just sitting there thinking there this is not happening to me there's no way and um i'm looking at my mom and my mom's just i mean the look on her face was just horrendous and she she was talking to this guy and i didn't know who the hell he was so after you know i calmed down a little bit and you know just standing there still in disbelief i he had walked away and asked my mom, I said, who the hell was that guy you were talking to? And she was like, say, that's your dad, one of your dad's best friends. And I looked at her and I said, I've never seen that man a day in my life. And she said, yeah, well, he's the one that, that, um, called the police and got the police over here. And, you know, I never thought about it from that point on, but, you know, as I started getting older, I started thinking, you know, if he was such a good friend of my dad's, he would know, of all people, that my dad was constantly gone at a moment's notice and didn't, you know, call people to tell him, hey, I'm going on a business trip. He just did his thing. So for him to be so concerned, especially when he just, he was with my dad on Friday night, you know, I mean, it just seemed a little peculiar that, you know, he would call the police and have the police over there and all the news media and everything before calling my dad's ex-wife and letting her know that something's not right, you know? So how did he discover the bodies? He acted or said he was alarmed because he hadn't heard from your dad and went over there and made entry in the house? Okay. Yes, sir. That's exactly what he did. And and mind you, he was a constable for Nueces County for a long time. And, um, And so every one of my dad's friends, and this is statements... These are statements that are police records, um, if anybody could ever get a hold of them. Uh, but every one of my dad's friends had a key to his house. That's just the way he was. Because some of his friends didn't live in Corpus. Sometimes they would travel to Corpus. And if they needed a place to crash and my dad's house was available, you know, they were welcome to use it. That's just how he was. So if this guy was such a good friend of my dad's, he would have had to, he had a house key. But yet, when the cops got there, he told them that he had—he showed them how to pick the lock. Okay, now this this door that he picked the lock on in front of the police officer, the first one that showed up, had a two-sided key lock on it. 
so he picks the slot for the cop. They go in, they discover the bodies, and then, boom, you know, uh, they call the police. And they, you know, they didn't call us, they called the police. And then, you know, just the fact that he picked the lock is what sends me in orbit because I know the man had a house key. I know he did. Um, some of my dad's friends that weren't even that close to him had house keys, you know? I mean, it just it just doesn't seem feasible that he would have to pick the lock. Now, the thing that disturbs me the most is that he had brought a girl from one of the places that they were partying at, the scary hair sky that I think I, that I know had some, I know he did it. Um, he brought a girl home with him who was highly intoxicated, ended up in my bedroom, passed out. He wakes her up about, I want to say like two-ish, and tells her that there's some bad stuff going down and that they need to leave the house. And, um, but yet he drops her off at her car. Now she's highly intoxicated and he's a constable. Why would he drop her off at her car too intoxicated to drive? Um, and asked her to follow him back to her apartment. Well, something spooked this woman and she decided I'm not going to follow him anywhere. But yet he told the police when they, when they questioned him that day or that evening after, you know, they closed up the crime scene and all. He told them that he had gone back to my dad's house and to retrieve a jacket and that he had to pick the lock to get back in the house. Now, if he left the house and they were fighting, and why would it be so important for him to go back to the house that he felt the need to leave to retrieve a jacket that belonged to a woman who didn't even follow him home like he asked her to? And, you know, so that sticks out in my mind so much. And then, um, you know, they, I watch a lot of ID and it's, and this is the reason why is because it's always boggled me as to why it's never been solved. But, um, he, um, you know, he, he places himself as the last people to see these people alive or the last person. And then he places himself back at the crime scene to retrieve a jacket at three o'clock in the morning. I'm, I'm just, to me, in my mind, that is just him putting himself there in case somebody saw him there at that time. And then he's the one that finds the bodies as well. Exactly. Those are two of the key elements in most murder cases. There's always the, either, there's either one or two of those elements in, I mean, one or the other of the two in those elements of someone who's guilty. They're either the last to see him or the first to find him. In this case, he's both. Looking back, just jumping back a little bit, when you had gone to the house and you looked into that window and you didn't see anything, mm-hmm. do you think your mind was like protecting you, like blocking that out? Yes, I do. Yes, yeah. I do. Only The only reason I say that is because I've seen the crime scene photos and the way they were positioned, there's no way I couldn't have seen them. There's just no way. I mean... Their bed, I mean, their bed was completely low enough to where her legs were bent and they were like she was doing sit-up. Her legs were draped over the bed. So her feet were right there, you know, and her, and the lower part of her leg was on the bed. So yeah, I think my mind subliminally, I've always wanted to try hypnosis, you know, just to see if I can remember anything, but you know, I mean, I've seen the crime scene photos, and it took me months to get that out of my head. And still, to this day, I mean, I, I still have a very vivid picture of that. But, you know, I mean, after years and years and years, you you know, you you tend to for not forget, but you tend to, to grow angry about it. And I don't know how it works, but, you know, you just, you get so angry that, the hurt still there, but it's more anger, you know? You had mentioned earlier the car, your dad had a very specific car. Can you say again what kind of car that was and, and the relevance of that? Because that car was found a short distance away, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was. About two miles. In fact, it was found in front of a house of a girl that this guy who found my dad, his name's Gary Harris. Um, it was found a couple of doors down from her house. 
and he was infatuated and obsessed with this woman. In fact, he called the answering service that night after everything was, you know, after my dad and them were probably already deceased. He called and spoke to one of the girls that was working there because this girl worked for the answering service as well. And that's all he did was talk about her at 345 in the morning. I mean, who does that, you know? Yeah. And um, it really it really had the, the girl... Uh, that he was talking to freaked out. And I think she gave a statement to the police as to, you know, the the contents of their conversation. He said it was in condition, so your dad was really proud of it? Oh, very proud of it. He, Him and both his brothers got one, for, I think, from my grandfather. Um, and, he, yeah, it was a prize for him. He kept that thing in mint condition. I mean, it was, it, everything was I mean, completely original, and it was a beautiful car, um, and it was convertible, and he loved that thing more than life itself, I think. He kept it in the garage, covered when, he, you know, he didn't, and he only took it out every once in a while, you know, take it out for a spin or something. And it just happens to show up near this woman's house who the, the exactly. person you suspect was involved uh, exactly has an interest in that woman. We know he's a suspect because he's there. He's placing himself there at all different times. But mm-hmm. early on, you told me too that is a little bit hurtful that the police looked at you and your mom. Is that correct? As a suspect, that is yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about what that's like when you think when the police think for a minute that that you might have something to do with your own dad's murder. Well, you know, um, I mentioned that. After this happened, like, it was hard for me to go to school to do anything. I didn't want to go nowhere. Um, And so I just happened to be home from school one day, and I was literally sick that day. And um, I got a knock at the door, and I'm in my pajamas. And these guys, I felt like a men in black, like I was a men in black or something. They jerked me, not jerked me, but they were like, you need to come with us right now. And they're doing like 90 miles an hour. It was pouring down raining. And they drove me in my pajamas to the DA's office and just started questioning and grilling me. And I was like, what is this all about? I mean, they were asking things like, where did my dad have his car washed? And just things I didn't find to be very relevant to his case. You know, I mean, I didn't find, you know, how his car being where it got washed. I didn't find that to be a a relevant, you know, question, but you know, they, they grilled me like, you know, um, like I was a suspect. I mean, they didn't come out and ask me any questions like, did you or your mom have anything to do with this? But that's just the way it felt, you know, like they were looking at us. And, you know, when I was that age, I was like four foot 10 and probably 89 pounds soaking wet. So, you know, I mean, it was ridiculous. It made me feel like, oh, my God, are they serious? They're not They're not looking in any other direction besides my mom or me. And it, it was scary. And not only that, it was, it was um, you know, degrading to think that, that, that a 14-year-old kid would kill her parents. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's not, I mean, in today's time, it's heard of all the time, but Back then, that was just never heard of, you know? So it was sort of a waste of time to go down that road looking at you and your mom. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, my mom and my dad were at each other's throats in the beginning of their divorce. But, you know, they they eventually got along. Um, My mom and my stepmom got along real well. My mom had absolutely no reason to want my dad dead, you know? So, um, that just, it just threw me for a loop. I thought, oh my God, if this is the road they're going down, we'll never know. You know, I knew where my mom was both nights that, you know, we were all together. So, um, it was, and then they, you know, they were looking into my stepfather and luckily for him, he was offshore at the time. So there was no way he was involved. They started, you know, questioning some of my dad's friends and way far away from anything that makes sense, you know. Leading them down rabbit holes, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and let's talk a little bit about the the brutality of you know, the crimes. I mean, you said mm-hmm. you've seen 
crime scene photos, which I can't even imagine how bad that was for you. But from what I've read, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it appears that someone killed them with a hatchet, but then came back later with a knife and mm-hmm. stabbed them repeatedly. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and they were both unclothed. I mean, my dad was in boxers and my stepmom was in underwear. Now, um, that only tells me that they were asleep. Um, my stepmom, it, it's, it's theory that they, they hit my dad in the head while he was asleep, which completely incapacitated him if it didn't kill him instantly. Um, and then my stepmother awoke. And they beat her so bad. The crime scene photos of her, it looked like she had long hair, like probably down to the middle of her back. And her hair in the crime scene photos was perfectly fanned out around her head. Like someone did it on purpose. I mean, I don't know if she just landed like that or or what. But her hair was perfectly fanned out. And it looked like you couldn't see a face. Her face looked flush with the carpet. It was black. Um, it looked like a bunch of bananas. Somebody just smashed a bunch of bananas and let them rot. That's how bad it was. Did it Did it seem like most of the rage was focused on her? Yes, it did. Yes, mm-hmm. it did. I mean, they beat her so bad, she could not have an open casket. And, and for someone to, you know, we hear that all the times of, of an argument happening and people spur of the moment going crazy and attacking someone, but to leave or maybe not to leave, maybe to hang out there, but one way or another to come back later on after they're already dead and stab them repeatedly, that's just beyond brutal. And that's just showing a lot of rage and a lot of uh, anger. You know, exactly. You think they would go off and say, Oh my God, what have I done? And cool off and, and maybe right. regret it. Instead, they come back and, and stab the body some more. That's just... Well, he did tell my mom when we were, when we the day they were found, before, you know, I approached my mom about who he was, he told my mom, he said, you know, uh, Stephanie lived longer. The killer heard gurgling noises coming from her. And my mom didn't think anything of it at the time. She just thought maybe that was something the police you know, she was oblivious to this kind of thing. This kind of thing didn't happen back then, you know? Mm. And, um, but it hit her hard, you know, later on when, when the DA was questioning us and so forth. And, um, you know, how would he know that? Why would he say something like that? You know? And he told, uh, someone else that as well. So, you know, that's one of the things that makes me think even more that he did it is that there's postmortem stab wounds. And, um, you know, he's making sure that, that they don't survive, you know, he wants to make sure the job is done. And this is Gary Harris, the, 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 the man that you believe, uh, had something yes, to do sir. with. And Absolutely. The, the police focus comes back around to him and they do wind up suspecting him, arresting and charging him. Uh, is that yes, correct? Sir. Yes, sir. How, what happens they, after that? Um, I know he was arrested because a grand jury indicted him. And at the time, the now, now I found this out years later when I was probably about 24 or 25. I had gone to paralegal school. And when I graduated, um, I did my internship um, with a private investigator. Her name was Catherine DeAnger. And she was friends with the guy who was the assistant DA at the time of my dad's murder. And she knew all about my dad's case. And she was like, I'm going to take you over and let you talk to Bill May. Cause he knows a lot of stuff about this case. And after he got out of office, he called my mom and told my mom, he would be, he would be more than happy to open up this case for her as a PI for uh, $10,000. And my mom was like, you were the assistant, this district attorney. And you want to charge me $10,000 to reopen a case you should have worked for your job, you know, seriously? And she was like, I'm sorry, but that's not going to happen. And so I had gone and talked to him, and I took a tape recorder with me, and I had it in my purse. And he told me he had a theory that this girl, where the, car, the, house, uh, the house where the car was found, he had, his theory was that she was involved. 
and he didn't want to um, try Gary Harris. He wanted to try them both, so he had the charges dropped due to the fact that he had a theory that evidently didn't pan out, and it never was touched again after that. So they essentially let him go thinking he would build a case against this other woman that was involved. And when he couldn't put that together, they just never uh, revisited the charges with him. Exactly. So how frustrating has that been to know that the person you suspected it and the, the person that was originally arrested for it has just gone on with their life? It's agony. It's pure agony when I think that he is out there living his life, you know, to the fullest. And, um, you know, two people that I dearly loved are not able to see life beyond theirs. You know, it's, it's, it's just nothing but agonizing. Where does the case stand now? Is there anything they can do once again, uh, as far as arresting him, if, if anything else comes to light, how's how's that process working? Well, you know, my theory is, and like I said, I'm not a genius or anything, but, I mean, to me, this is a no-brainer. He puts himself in the spotlight. He puts himself there. Um, you know, he talked to the answering service at my dad's house. He told the answering service when my dad was still alive. At the same time, my right after my dad talked to them, and told them that he was home for the night, they were going to turn in. Gary got on the phone, because he used the same answering service, and told them, hey, I'm going to be spending the night over here tonight. So if you need me, you know, you you can read, I'll be here, you can, this is where I'm at. And then, you know, and then he calls again at three-something in the morning, and just chit-chats about this girl that works there with with one of the ladies that, you know, answers one answers the phones. And, um, so, you know, I I mean, there's just, if the new, if the new DAs that we have right now could just see, you know, the case, they could see that there's no window of opportunity for anybody else to be involved. There's just not, I mean, and it's not due to any evidence that they collected. It's due to what this man has said himself. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, He's, he has splattered himself all over this case, finding them, being the last to see them, calling the answering service um, from his house, saying he was staying the night, yet he leaves, his date leaves, only to never return. When they questioned her at the police department, they wanted her to, to go back to the house and show them, you know, like the steps that she remembers following whenever he woke her up to leave the house and she told them no way in hell will I ever step foot in the house. So either she knows something and he has threatened her or because she up and moved to Florida right away and she's never been seen or heard from since. I mean, she does still live in Florida. Uh, a private investigator has told us that much, but, um, but like she doesn't want nothing to do with this. She's scared. I mean, she, something spooked that girl. And, you know, the private investigator we talked to, because he, he actually was like his first year uh, as a detective when this case happened, and he was actually at the crime scene. Um, and he took a statement from Gary Harris. And he said that, you know, Gary basically, it, he he told us that basically someone with law enforcement knowledge had to had a part in the crime because nothing was taken. Um, everything was tidied, um, and locked back up. Um, okay. And that's another thing too. When he went back to get the jacket, he picks the lock and then he picks the lock again to lock the door when he leaves. I mean, it just, it just, there's, it just doesn't make any sense that there is anybody else. Somebody would literally have to sit outside and anticipate my dad and my stepmom having a fight and Gary and his date leaving so that they could go in and, and kill them. You know what I mean? That's it just seems to me like 12 people that are level-headed could see right through this and see it for what it is. You and know, he's, 
he's picking locks multiple times. He's at the scene exactly multiple times. It just seems like he's all all around. Uh, that Absolutely. Thing. I'm not saying he didn't have an accomplice, but I'm but I'm going to tell you right now, he was involved. He was definitely involved. Now, my sister, both of my sisters have run into him since this um, has happened, and this is when they were much older adults. I mean, um, my youngest sister saw him in Sam's one day and she said when she passed by him and he made eye contact that he stopped dead in his tracks. And she said he turned around and he looked like he saw a ghost and she walked up to him and asked him, why did you kill my dad? And he told her, I can't talk to you about that. I know things, but I can't talk to you about that right now. And so it's, you know, I mean, why would he say something like that? To her, you know, I mean, I know things, but I can't tell you. I mean, not to mention that he hired one of the best criminal defense attorneys in South Texas. He'll never be that fortunate again. That man is not alive anymore, but um, he'll never be that fortunate again. So I think if they reopen this case, that he, first of all, he wouldn't have the funding that he had back then because his parents were alive and they mortgaged their house to get him out of jail. If you go look at his LinkedIn profile, it gives a history of his jobs. He has not worked, ever since my dad's case, he has not worked at a job longer than a year and a half. So his job history is long. I mean, it just there's just a lot of things that make you wonder about the type of character he is. What do the police think the motive for the murders is? The police have never given us any kind of motive that's that's one thing that they don't have honestly um i've been told that my stepmother dated gary harris before she dated my dad and i think that he his motivation was that he they probably showed up at my dad's house before my well they did they were there before my dad got home my stepmom got home first i think his date passed out in the bedroom and I think he made an advance towards her, and she rejected him. And shortly thereafter, my dad had come home. And I think he just sat there and brewed over it and brewed over it. And because his date looked just like my stepmom, and the girl that he was infatuated with from the answering service looked just like my stepmother. So I think the motivation was her. I think he was he had a thing for her, and you just didn't turn him down, you know? Um. I had heard a story about a woman who, um, who was on a on a, a bypass that takes you from Corpus Christi to Port Aransas, and it's a good probably fifteen mile stretch of road, and it's dark. And um, one night while he was on patrol as a constable, um, he just happened to be going down that road, and she was broke down on the side of the road. Her battery or alternator or something went out, and so he stopped to assist her and tried to jumpstart the car, and he couldn't get it started. And she said that he just started pounding on her car. He got that angry. And, you know, I mean, it's just... um, And I don't know if you heard or read any transcripts or anything like that, but there was a statement given by my stepmom's dad that at the funeral home, they were looking outside because it was pouring down raining that day, and they were looking outside, and my my step grandfather um, mentioned to him. He was he was standing right next to Gary Harris. Mentioned to him, man, this rain is, is the, you know, it's really coming down. And he said that Gary grabbed him by the shirt real tight and squeezed it and just gritted his teeth at him, and for no reason. Like I mean, all he did was mention the weather, and it, it was like he was. There was just some sort of anger in him that he grabbed him and, like, just gritted his teeth. He, I don't think he said anything. I'd have to go back and look at the paperwork that, um, that I have on. And then a couple of people, because he was a pallbearer, a couple of people said that he, you know, he, he kept standing around the casket, like my dad's casket. And my dad's watch and his ring were the only things that were missing from that house. And they... A lot of people's assumption was that he was trying to figure out a way to get those rings and or that ring and those and that watch in that casket. Um, mm-hmm. 
to get it out of his possession. Now, let me tell you something that's even more interesting. The skull's house where the car was found um, was probably about two miles away from my dad's house. And my stepmother's purse was missing. Nothing was missing out of it. Money, credit cards, nothing like that. Uh, but it was found on the side of the road en route from my dad's house to the girl's house. So they threw it out, essentially, without taking anything out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and my dad had drove that car that night to the party because my stepmom had gotten rid of her car. So she was driving his business car. She had his car, and he had the convertible. But when the car was found, it was completely wiped down except for one fingerprint, and it belonged to him. And it was on the passenger side outside of the window. It was only about a two-mile walk. Oh. And it seems like some of the puzzle pieces fall into place, yet, they're, you know, the arrest doesn't hold up, and here you are all these years later without answers. Well, I, I just want to thank you once again for coming on to discuss the case with us. I know that your family's been waiting for answers for a long time, and I hope that you'll get those answers one day soon. Oh, me too, and I thank you so much for taking an interest in us. I really do. I, I feel like the more people that hear it, maybe maybe more people will be inclined to come forward, you know. Um, we're just scratching the surface right now. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Kate Morris for writing and research assistance in this episode. Also, very special thanks goes out to the Gone Cold podcast, who helped supply material for this episode. They covered the Gillette case recently in depth over multiple episodes, and I highly recommend that you go over and check out their podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend to the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.